You could spend the weekend doing the same old whatever, or you could conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. What's going on, everyone? Jared Sandler welcoming you to the Justice Sec Conversation. Episode 40 today with the executive producer of Fox Sports Southwest, Jason Walsh. He's the man who is charged with making some of the really tough decisions and leading in the direction of that one TV station that we spend so much time watching our beloved Mavs and Stars and Rangers and much, much more, including high school football. So I had a great chat with Jason about how he leads a TV network like that and also about some of his past experiences with multiple decades time spent with the Dallas Stars, including a Stanley Cup winning team, uh, dealing with some really tough moments, some great moments, and dealing with a rebrand of the Dallas Stars, bringing the victory green to the ice at the American Airlines Center. We talk about all of that. Before we get to the conversation, just want to remind you, we'd really appreciate it if you would like or comment or subscribe or just share this link with people uh, who you think might be interested. And I encourage you to check out the channel if you've not done so yet. It's not just these interviews, although you can catch all 40 released episodes, including this one right here. We have conversations with people in and around the sports world, commentaries, interviews, and much more. So I'd encourage you and would appreciate if you would consider checking it out. But right now, it's time for episode 40 of the Justice Set Conversation with the executive producer of Fox Sports Southwest, Jason Walsh. All right, Jason. So the first question I always like to ask, you know, you can go in whatever direction you'd like. When you think back on your childhood uh, and growing up, what were some of your interests, influences, things that just stand out to you about that time in your life? Um, You know, one of the things I always think about is, honestly, Notre Dame football. Crazy, uh, but my dad went to Notre Dame. My grandfather wanted to go to Notre Dame, but, but, but couldn't get in. And uh, so obviously every Saturday afternoon or sometimes evening was uh, devoted family time in front of the TV watching the Fighting Irish. And I, uh, as a kid, was as devout of a fan as you could possibly be. Um, it didn't turn out for me that I had the grades <laughs> to get into an institution like that. Uh, but when I think about my childhood, some of my my biggest memories and i know this isn't necessarily sports related but it's it's notre dame football have you been you know what is funny i've been to notre dame's campus multiple times been there on vacation with my family to stay in the dorms i've never seen a game from inside their stadium i went to the cotton bowl uh, a few times <laughs> yeah uh, when they played in bowl games i've seen them at uh Cab- the new cowboys at&t stadium but i have not seen a game from inside that stadium I've been fortunate to go to to certainly all the Pac-12 schools and then a few others, and USC plays Notre Dame every other year in South Bend, every year, you know, either in L.A. or South Bend. And going to the games in South Bend, I've been able to go to two, or two of my favorite, not just football, but sports experiences. I I hope you get the chance to go. That that is really a cool place. The closest I ever got was – uh, I had some friends who uh, we were in in Detroit, and this is I was uh, I was just out of college, um, and we were visiting, and we decided that we had to drive down to Indianapolis for whatever reason, and it was a Saturday, and I was like, hey, why don't we swim through South Bend? They're playing Michigan, and actually it was Tom Brady's last year, ironically enough, uh, and uh, so what we, we I just wanted to be outside the stadium. I just wanted to feel the campus. We didn't have a ticket to get in, so you know we get down there. We're hanging out, having a good time. I'm seeing the campus and the pep rallies and the, 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 the one partying out in the parking lot, what have you. Uh, and the game ends, right? We never got in. The game ends. And as the game ends, it was, I guess it was kind of a crazy play at the very end. Uh, I, I was like, I, I have to get inside the stadium. And so I, I made my way from kind of one uh, usher to another usher, and they were giving away posters that day. And I was like, I left my poster in my seat. I got to go grab it. And the guy ended up letting me in. And I ran through the game. I just ended. I ran through uh, down down the, onto the field, and I was on the field with all the students in the student section. 
uh, after the game. But I've never seen a game inside there, which is just crazy to think about. <laughs> That's amazing. In, in Notre Dame, Michigan, for my money, the two best fight songs in college sports. No doubt. I, you know what? you got to have a lot of respect for Michigan. I love all the, the schools that, we, you know, that you, you have with uh, rivalries and what have you, but uh, Michigan's fight song is uh, definitely strong. Yeah, pretty special. Uh, all right, Jason, I think I read that you you started in, in even the smallest capacity in a, a broadcasting or TV role as a sophomore in high school. It, what kind of pushed you in that direction? What fueled your interest to get involved at that time of your life? Um, well, it's a, it's a story that is, I guess, fairly interesting. I tell this all the time whenever I speak at colleges. So as a freshman in high school, I just was lost. And I just wasn't interested in doing the work at all. And I failed six of my seven classes, uh, like one of the final six weeks. And I was just a mess. Uh, and it's a tough time in, I think, any you know young kid's life when they're going through high school and it's just lots going on. <laughs> but um, my parents went and they had a meeting with the principal and the assistant principal. And for me, I went to Duncanville. And that was the first year Duncanville High School had a uh, – a ninth grade only school. So we were in ninth grade by ourselves away from the high school. And so we had a lot more direct attention from um, principal and what have you. And they were like, look, we got to do something to help the kid out. Uh, he just doesn't seem like he's not sparking. There's no spark. So, you know what, let's put him in some classes. Let's get him some easy A's. And we got a class starting next year. It's the first time it's going to be given. It's called broadcast journalism. It's going to be an easy A. And, I had it first thing in the morning, eight o'clock in the morning, my sophomore year. And I, I remember I walked in, I was the first kid in the class. I walked in and there was a video camera sitting on a tripod and the teacher, I sat down in my seat and I looked over and I said, are we going to get a chance to actually use that? And she's like, well, I hope so. <laughs> Broadcast journalism. And I was like, okay, that class and that teacher changed my life. I, I just en- engrossed myself. And there were, honestly, there were about five or six of us in that class that just started doing things. We just started creating production and TV, and I learned everything I could about it. Um, and I ended up, that was a one-hour class my sophomore year. The next year, they, they cre- because it was so popular amongst the kids, they created a, a class called Media Technology, which was a two-hour class. And so I took that. And then the next year, my senior year, I took, you know, Media Technology too. And I, I went, all of a sudden, I was at school you know, an hour before school to be in that class editing and doing things and, and just, you know, diving in. And then I'd stay after school until 4.30, 5.30, doing things, creating news magazines. And I, I, it just, I knew it my sophomore year. I was like, this is what I'm destined to do. I know what I'm doing when I go to college. It, so what turned out to be a colossal failure from an academic standpoint changed my life, and I got lucky. And he never... You know, you think about your life and you think about the different paths you could take. And I tell people all the time, I'm like, never discount luck. There's some semblance of luck in all of it. What was the name of that teacher? And do you still keep in touch with that teacher to this day? Uh, her name was Nancy Noyes. And, uh, yes, uh, in fact, we hadn't really communicated in several years. And I just talked to her the other day because it was Teacher Appreciation Day. And she had posted something on Facebook. And I was just like, hey, uh, you know, I appreciate you. Uh, you changed my life and uh, and saved it in some ways because I was I was lost. And I told her what I was doing now, uh, uh, you know, overseeing production at Fox Sports Southwest. And she was just <laughs> like, oh, my God, uh, didn't realize you'd, you'd done all that. So, yes, uh, definitely there's, there's several people, I think, for everybody that, that, that touches their life. She was uh, she was one of my angels. That's awesome. Uh, did she know while you were progressing through high school that she had that sort of an impact or did you even realize at the time that she had that sort of an impact or is that something that you only really uh, grasped after the fact? No, it was, it was going on uh, when I was a sophomore and a junior and a senior and it wasn't just me. There were, there were five, six, seven of us that just, I don't know what it was that all the right people, the right place, the right time, uh, we all dove into it, and, and honestly, I, I think we became pretty decent at, at doing that type of work, that job, that creative, um, you know, and, and everybody has a different story out of this group, and we're, and for the most part, we all still communicate, um, you know, 
one person took off and went to NPR. One person took off and they create video games now. Um, but we're all in, in somewhat the similar industry. And uh, it's, 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 it was a pretty fascinating time. It's kind of, you know, the uh, rat pack type thing, right? You get five or six people in a group and, and amazing things can happen. And, and that, it happened. And I was very fortunate. All right. I, I want to talk about uh, some of your time with the stars or some of your experiences before, you know, moving on to your current role. Uh, and I guess the, the first thing I want to talk about or time period is, is that 1999 season and specifically the Stanley cup run. What was that like for you just uh, as a, as a human being around something uh, as special as that, and then professionally in your role with the stars, what what were your responsibilities then, and, and what was that like to experience from a professional side? I'll give you a little bit of the lead up to what how I ended up there in the first place because I was 23 years old, and why was a 23 year old? How did I find myself in the locker room running around with the Stanley Cup and the team? Um, so I graduated from the University of North Texas. Uh, I thought I was going to go into film. And uh, I was trying to figure out a way to get to California. I was literally probably days away from packing my car up and going. And for some reason, I had to go back to uh, North Texas to get a transcript. I don't even remember why I was up there. Um, and I, I walked into the radio TV film building, and there was a woman, and she was posting uh, these flyers all over the building uh, for internships for the stars. Well, I had started playing hockey. I had started inline hockey, and this kind of started having some interest in hockey. And I was like, well, I, I would love to do that. Um, and so I followed her around and I took all the, all the postings she had down. Because <laughs> I, I was, it's competitive. I, I, I'm not saying you should do that, but that's what I did. That's the story. So I, I took them all down. I get a call from Ralph Stranges, who was the play-by-play guy for the Stars at the time. And he's like, hey, I heard you're interested in an internship. He interviewed me. And he said, there's five intern positions available. Four of them are production-related, and one of them is stats. And I, I was like, okay, I, I will do anything. Meanwhile, in the back of my mind, I was like, I want to do production. Please don't give me stats. I'm terrible at math. Let me show you my transcript from my freshman year in high school. <laughs> and uh, he calls me up later after our interview, and he's like, I love the fact that you wore a suit. You're a professional. Um, I'm going to give you the stats job. <laughs> and I was like, yes, sir. Whatever it takes, I'm happy to be there, happy to do it. What I didn't realize is, again, talk about luck. Um, if I would have gotten any of the other internship positions, I probably wouldn't have been there with the team uh, working in, in a full-time capacity and, and traveling with them. You know, I sat next to Razor for that entire year. And uh, for some reason, um, our personalities and I think uh, work ethics just, it just clicked. So I had to sit next to him and I fed him stats all season and he, he you know, he, he gave me some guidelines. I, I did exactly what he asked me to do. And, uh, you know, we struck up a bit of a friendship and, um, I spent the entire year trying to figure out a way to make the Dallas stars a, a full-time job. And by the time he got to the end of the year, I'd written him a letter and I was just like, I, I can do this. I can do anything in production you want to do. Um, but I'll, I'll follow you wherever you go and I'll, I'm in. And he's like, look, I think we're going to actually add a position to our broadcast staff. It's going to be doing, you know, TV graphics and stats related. And I think you could do this. And lo and behold, there I am a year later in 1998-99 traveling with a team that's going to win a Stanley Cup charter plane and with the players. And I was like, how in the hell did I get here? <laughs> um, and I got a chance to be around a team that was an all-time group. I mean, you talk about seven Hall of Famers. Uh, you talk about some some uh, the older veterans and the things the things that you watch and you learn and you pick up and you're like it's it's unbelievable. Um, so, I, again, I don't I base the whole thing my entire life on luck. I guess you make your luck in some ways, but um, it was it was very surreal to sit there uh, during Game Six standing on a chair above Ralph and Razor doing stats for six periods of a hockey game, watching that goal go in. As it goes in, I put my fist in the air to, to celebrate and punched right through the ceiling tile <laughs> in the roof. And that was, that was where I was at, at uh, the 1999 Stanley Cup final game six against Buffalo. Have you seen the movie The Breakfast Club? 
Of course. Okay, so I, when you just said that you, you pumped your fist, you, you raised your fist in the air, the first thing I thought about uh, was John Nelson. Bender. At the, yeah. yeah, at the end. Yeah, Judd Nelson, John Bender at the end, that, 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 that frozen scene that ends the movie, that, that, that was you in, uh, in Buffalo. Well, because there's no cheering in the press box. The one thing you learn is, you know, when you're part of the media or what have you, you, you don't cheer. But, I mean, let's be honest. Uh, if the world, you know, if it's a World Series, if it's a NBA title, and it, it's the seminal moment, yeah, you're going to internally be like, yeah, you know, we did it. And I just, I put my fist in the air, like it went, because like, I mean, it was triple overtime, and it went in, and it was, it was very much like that, except uh, my fist was all the way through the ceiling. <laughs> I appreciate you sharing that. I, you know, I, we, you know, respect for your time. And I kind of went through the things I wanted to ask. I didn't even think to ask how you got to the stars because there's so many things I wanted to cover. But, I mean, that's an outstanding story, and I appreciate you uh, you sharing that. Uh, Now, I'm a huge stars fan, Jason. I guess I'm a little confused because I recall that Joe Neuendijk won the Conn Smythe Trophy, but I I heard that Jason Walsh was the one who was possessing the Conn Smythe Trophy for some time. What what, what all happened there? Uh. All right, we're down in the locker room. It's four in the morning. We're trying to get out of there. I mean, the big party, champagne was everywhere. Uh, the media had all finally left. And we're trying to get the team and everybody showered and out to the bus to get on the buses to go back to Dallas. And uh, I, for some reason, I'm standing kind of in this little corner area. And Neuendike is in a trainer's room. And the cons might have sitting next to him. And uh, Larry Kelly was the, the PR guy at the time. And uh, Larry's like, Joe, I, here, I'm going to bring the, I'll take the consmite to the truck, uh, or to the bus for you. And uh, Joe's like, yeah, that's great. And then Larry turns and sees me standing there with nothing to do. And Larry's a pretty busy guy at that moment. And he goes, Walshie, here, take this. And make sure it gets on the bus. So here I am walking through the bowels of the stadium with the consmite trophy out the arena, off into the bus, sitting with the consmite trophy the whole time. And I'm just like, yeah, that's pretty cool. That's uh, you don't get get a chance to do that very often. <laughs> That's awesome. You you have a picture with it? Oh yeah. Okay, good. Oh yeah. Good. Uh, all right, Jason. Several years later, 2014. Uh, you know, you're still with the stars. Your responsibilities have certainly changed. Uh, Rich Peverly collapses on the bench in the middle of a game. What what was that like? Uh, from a, a broadcast standpoint, I, I believe you're director of broadcasting at that time. You know, just the experience of, of how to handle that the right way, uh, what to do, what not to do. You know, I, I guess maybe there's some training for, you know, extreme circumstances, but in the moment it seems like there's no proper playbook. It's just so much on, on feel. What, what do you recall about that unfortunate experience? I'm pretty sure it was March 10th, 2013. It's one of those things that when you go through something like that, you never forget. Um, we, um, you know, we're doing a broadcast, a regular broadcast. And uh, the beginning of the game, and uh, for some reason that night, that, that night began, and I was listening to the audio. And when you sit in the control room, there's a lot of sound, a lot of voices, people talking and stuff. But I remember being able to really, really hear the ice and the sound of the sticks. And I was like, man, our audio sounds really crisp tonight. Like, that's, that's pretty wild. I feel like I can hear anything. And, like, five minutes later, um, all of a sudden, there's just chaos. And sticks are banging, and I hear someone screaming, get a paramedic! Doctor! And I was like, what? Why has happened? And I, all of a sudden, you just see this grouping of, of players and people and chaos happening on, at the star's bench. And at the time, I looked at it, and I was like, oh, wow, somebody must have gotten checked into the bench. You know, maybe maybe pretty bad. And then I could see I could see a, a, someone getting basically drugged by two people out to the tunnel between the two benches. And our cameras, you know, they, they all shoot in like that quickly, like they're they're trained to, to snap zoom in. And I could see that a player just got pulled into uh, between the benches and the doors closed. And I'm like, what 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 just happened? And so you knew it was bad. You could just tell the sense, the urgency, and the hair in the back of your neck stands up, and you're like, oh, my God. What, what is it? What's that? I have no information. Um, and our director, you know, he and I had worked together, Mark Vittorio, for a long time, and we had gone through some training 
first, the only time we've ever gone through training was about a year earlier, uh, and it was from a football game. They showed us where uh, you know a player basically had been paralyzed, and they talked a lot about look, just things are going to happen. It's sports. Uh, it's too. It's very violent, and bad things can occur. And your job is to give the information. You got to make that. You got to put on a different hat. You're going from a sports producer to now a news producer, and there's a very very different role there <laughs> from what, what those two positions really are. And you've got to be careful and you cannot speculate. Do not speculate. And so I, I, I don't know what player it was. I, I just know a player. I was pretty sure it was a Stars player. Um, and all of our cameras pulled back and our director, Mark Vittorio, he pulled all the cameras back. We stayed pretty wide. And I remember Razor and Ralph were just like, what, what, what do you know? What happened? I, was like, I, I don't know. I, I don't know anything. Um, and we started looking at it, and we were like, we start counting players. And we we're like, okay, the only player we don't see is Rich Peverly. I knew that Rich Peverly had had a, a bit of a cardiac issue. I mean, first of all, we knew he had some cardiac issues going on overall. Every, that was public knowledge. And we knew that he had had a little cardiac event that kept him out of a game maybe a week and a half earlier. Uh, they were just being careful with him. And I was like, did he have a heart attack? Did something happen? Did he get hurt? Or did he get hurt? Did he get hit? You just couldn't tell. And man, the look on the player's face was like, I'll never forget it. You just never forget it. And uh, we tried to figure out what to do. We didn't have a lot to go on. We figured out pretty quickly, Rich Peverly, and we saw one of the players was Ray Whitney, uh, Stars player, and he's over talking to one of the Columbus Blue Jackets players, and he, he kind of points to his heart, and he kind of does a little like patting of the heart to one of the guys because, you know, obviously not everybody on their side knew what Rich's conditions were, and I was like, he had a heart issue. And then Razor was like, he, he might have died. Because we saw Relindy Ruff's face after everything, the coach, and he was white as a sheet. And Razor's like, I, oh, my God. It was the, – the problem is when you're doing that, it, it's, things start going very slow. <laughs> Time starts creeping. Meanwhile, you're live. You're on the air. And, oh, by the way, we're a radio simulcast. So just because we can be quiet on TV, it's hard to be really quiet on radio. But we did. We decided, I told the guys, I was like, the best thing we can do is to not say anything at all. Unless you, unless you know, don't say it. And we need the team to give us some kind of formal explanation as to what has happened. You think immediately, too, about, is his wife watching? His kids? His mom? His dad? Where are they? Um, you know, right when the incident happened, too, the NHL has officials who dictate TV commercials. They all wanted us to go to commercial. And I was like, we are not going to commercial. They're like, no, no, we're going to commercial. I was like, we are not going to commercial. That's not happening. I do not care. Like, you can't leave what is obviously a very, very serious scene. And there's a lot of people who, who disagreed with that and thought, you need to give your, you know, your talent some time to take a breath and kind of get their thoughts organized. And I was like, yeah, well, we just didn't talk. <laughs> that, was, that was what we did. We stayed, and we didn't need to talk. That was giving them the chance to kind of uh, collect their thoughts. And I'll say this, Ralph and Razor were exceptional. They didn't speculate. Uh, it took us about 35 minutes before Razor finally said, the guy we don't see down there is Rich Peverly. Like 35 minutes. So uh, that, that is one event that I will never forget. Uh, being a part of, and I've learned a lot from it, and I've actually given quite a few talks about it because, you know, you never understand until a situation like that happens to you. And we, have, I have a longtime friend who works for the St. Louis Blues, and uh, we've talked we've talked about that situation several times. And lo and behold, something almost identical happened this past year with the Blues, and he's the producer in the chair, and he was just like, "You are a hundred percent right. There's no way to really describe it or explain it." But at least I knew he, he had a chance to know kind of what we did and was able to have some type of playbook. And at least we were able at that time to have somewhat of a playbook because Fox Sports had the foresight to give us some training in it. That's fascinating. And, and the incident you're referencing with Jay Bowmeister this past year with the Blues, uh, you know, for people listening that, you know, maybe that uh, uh, reminds them of, of what went down and maybe they don't remember the Rich Peverly incident and, and can kind of draw some parallels. I, have you heard, did you ever hear from anyone 
from his family or, you know, someone that maybe was personally connected. Hey, we really appreciated the way you handled that. Not that you needed that for any sort of validation, but I'm just curious, did anyone ever kind of reach out on a personal level? No, not, not really. I mean, I, we, we, you get to know the players when you travel with them day in and day out a little bit, you know, um, I wouldn't say we're, we're quote unquote friends, but we, you know, you, you get to know them, your family for a year. And, you know, I think there was just, a, they had, they had so much going on with what had happened. And I mean, the questions about his career and whatnot, but there was a, I did see him uh, maybe two years after that. And there was, you know, it's the handshake and the knowing nod and that he knew, and that we were trying to do it the right way. And uh, every, you know, it was kind of acknowledged that what we did was, was the best we could do with the situation we were given. All right, now one of the things, and you wore a lot of different hats with the Stars, and so one of those hats meant that you were a, a big part of the Stars rebranding a few years ago. What's that process like? How, you know, it's easy for a fan to say, hey, you know, that they should change the colors to this and this, or they need a new jersey, or, you know, whatever, uh, all the different elements that fall into that. What's the actual process like of rebranding uh, for a professional sports team? Um, it's a really, really big deal. And I will say that I did not realize, I think, and even in going through it, how big of a deal it was until the night we unveiled the actual final Jersey, the new logo, the, all the stuff. And I left the event and I was driving home and I happened to drive past the star center where the old logo was on top of the building. And as I passed it, I got the chills and I was like, Oh my God, we just changed that. Like it didn't even hit me until then. But it's so the, the overall process. It's it's big, it's hard. It took us a year, um, and I I will give so much credit to Tom Gallardi for uh, his vision for it, how he did it. Um, you know, you start with the logo. We found we went through uh, the league and Reebok, and uh, we had our own ideas. Um, and we start going back and forth and trying to understand what the, how you generally do this. Well, the way you normally do it with the NHL is uh, they give you some logos, you select one, you might tweak it a little bit. Then you go through um, and say, they say, here's three or four jersey designs. Okay, we kind of like this one. We'd like to see you know, the stripes maybe a little wider. Then they come back and show you three more. They make a prototype, and you're done. That was not how we did it. We had an incredible creative group at the Stars. And uh, a creative director, uh, his name is Jeff Neal, who is brilliant with the ability to, to mock up uh, and, and jerseys and, and prototype type things. And uh, we, we got the, the list from the league. We went through. We looked at some various logos. We finally kind of settled on one. And none of us in the room could decide what color scheme the Dallas Stars should be. We, we, everybody was of a different opinion. Some people felt that we should be more true to our roots and try to go green. Some people felt that green was a bad color. People will never wear green. Uh, people don't buy apparel that's green, so that would be a negative. Some people wanted to be red, white, and blue. Uh, some people wanted to mix, you know, match up to the Dallas Cowboys and be more blue and silver. Uh, there was a lot of talk about, uh, again, a, a variety of things. And at one point, just by sheer mistake, as we were going through and, and doing different variations of Jersey, we, uh, we were looking at a green and gold and then we removed the green and put the blue in. And then we were going to remove the gold and put the silver in. But then we stopped and looked at it and we were like, you know, blue and gold looks pretty good. And being a Notre Dame guy, I was like, <laughs> I, I really like blue and gold. I'm not going to lie. Uh, and that became a real contender. So, um, at the end we were looking at basically green and gold, I'm sorry, we, we eliminated gold. The reason we eliminated gold is gold is a very difficult color to use um, on different fabrics. So different fabric, gold looks different. Sometimes it looks yellow. Sometimes it's shiny. Sometimes it's not. And so you can have no, you have no consistency with your brand with gold. And that's why gold was eliminated. Um, so we knew silver was a, was a better color for that. Um, we... We ended up with with, uh, with green, and Jim Lights gets a lot of credit for that because he kept trying to push us back to our roots. And Tom Gillardi has an eye for design and really helped us with simplifying uh, a vision for a long-term, timeless, classic jersey that, uh, you know, 
it, it, it's just in, for some reason it's in his nature to be able to, to, to look at things in a certain way and, and um, find the right mix and balance to get that. He really was a big part of it, huge. I probably talked to him once a week, every week for a year, um, about this process. He was so involved. At one point, my favorite story is we got our prototypes, and I was really excited to show him. He came to Dallas. I'm going to walk into Jim Lights' office, and I've got the prototypes in a bag. I pull out the prototypes and I kind of unveil them and I lay them on the desk. He looks at it. He looks up at me and he goes, get a ruler. I was like, a ruler? <laughs> Who's got a ruler anymore? And I was like, okay, let me, uh, so we found a ruler. Somebody happened to have a ruler. And I, I go in there and he goes, that stripes off. I was like, what? The stripes at the bottom of the Jersey, when they did the prototype, one of the stripes was one eighth of an inch off. He wow. saw it immediately. And I was just like, oh, my. Uh, and so I had to do some research. I went back to him and I said, well, Tom, I, it is one-eighth of an inch off. You're correct. But uh, when you're in prototype phase, an eighth of an inch is considered acceptable because it's not like you're making the final product. <laughs> <laughs> but, but, like, that tells you something. Yeah. That's how engrossed and involved he was. Um, so fascinating journey. Really important to get it right. Um, really important to find out what we thought at the time was the new spirit and new feel for the stars while remaining true to your roots, uh, which is how you, why you keep the green, and then also being classic and something that could sustain for a long period of time. I, I never realized that, and, and I wasn't living in, in Dallas at the time, so maybe it was out there. I never realized that there was a, a possibility that the stars went away from green and, and went to that, that blue combination you talked about. That's uh, that, that's well, we, not, we didn't, we didn't actually go to blue. It was a final contender. Um, right, I yeah. actually ha- yeah. I have the prototype in my office, in my office at my house. Um, it's blue and gold and it's a star Jersey. And if I ever, people always come by and they're like, what is that? And I was like, that is <laughs> what almost was. That's crazy. I, yeah, I, I didn't realize that was, I guess I just assumed it. And maybe I read something along the way. Hey, stars are, uh, and maybe I didn't, but you know, if there was something out there that indicated there was going to be a new logo, a new color scheme, I guess I just always assumed, well, it's going to be green and something. Uh, and and but we, but we had really become black, like we had yeah. the black as a primary color with our scheme, and then we were white with some green accent, and everybody wanted to embrace green, and everybody wanted to keep our at the time it was called stars green. Uh, which was that deep forest green. The problem with deep forest green is it looks terrible on TV. And fortunately, I work in TV. So I was able to <laughs> get everybody to understand, like, you know, when you shoot when you shoot against white ice, as Razor says this often, too, when you shoot against white ice, color just gets drowned out and gets sucked out of the camera lens. So you need something that's going to pop. But we didn't want to be, we didn't want to be Kelly Green because Kelly Green was more what the Minnesota North Stars were. And we had to find our own green. Finding our own green was really hard because Reebok at one point gave up and was like, we, we can't, we don't have the color you're asking for. It's unbelievable to, to learn that, you know, fashion companies don't always have every color of every fabric available to them. That was, that was weird, but it's true. And so what it, I just kept arguing the point and arguing the point. And finally, one day the NHL came back and said, we found a green from years ago that was on, I think it was like a minor league jersey. And what about this? And we were like, that's it. It had one shade of blue more in it than yellow, which is the difference in Victory Green and Kelly Green. Wow. And they're like, I didn't go to school for any of it. <laughs> <laughs> but I've learned a lot. That That's crazy. One. Okay, so obviously, based on uh, the the last several minutes, your impact on the stars was, was pretty strong, and, and you were there uh, – around two decades, maybe a little short of two decades. And, and then you, uh, I guess in your current role, you still are connected to the stars, but now uh, with Fox sports Southwest, that includes, you know, several other sports properties and, and different responsibilities. Uh, what led you to take this current role uh, and how, you know, for people who don't understand necessarily what your role is, uh, how would you explain your responsibilities? Well, my responsibilities for the stars were varied, but at the end of the day, you know, my specialty was in TV and, you know, I produced the games and you travel with the team and you go everywhere. And, um, but, but, you know, you do a lot of different things too. The Dallas stars are a hockey team. 
they're not a TV entity. They're not a TV outlet. And, um, you know, my, I think, true desire was always to oversee some type of television entity at a, at a, at a higher level or a bigger level. That's what I want. I want a more of a challenge with TV. And to be honest, the travel is grueling. It's hard. It's really hard on, on you personally. It's hard on your family. My daughter was, was getting to be, at the time, you know, eight years old. Um, so you're going into those really, really formative years and I wanted to be home more. Um, so I had always, you know, had interest in maybe becoming an executive producer and working for Fox. And I had had a couple opportunities with Fox to go other places, but I didn't want to leave Dallas. Dallas has been my home. I love Dallas. People ask, where, where would you want to live anywhere in the U S and I tell them, I feel like I've pretty much lived everywhere in the U S when you travel to these cities over and over and over again, you get a pretty good idea what Boston is like or what St. Louis is like. And so I was like, I'll wait for the job to open if the job ever opened. And the job opened. And as soon as it opened, I pursued it. Uh, the team knew. The team, the, the, we, we had a great relationship with that. They knew that I would always be interested in a position like this. And, um, and so when it opened and I had a chance to take the job, I was very lucky. Uh, so this job now, uh, executive producer for Fox Sports Southwest means that you're overseeing six different pro teams so we have locally obviously the stars the Mavs, and the rangers but we have the oklahoma city thunder we have the new orleans pelicans we have the san antonio spurs and then we have texas high school football which i always say is the seventh pro team we cover because this is texas and it's high school football um and there's a lot that goes into that so um you know I'm, I'm still very much affiliated with the stars. I kind of joke all the time that I feel like I'm still a part of it. I really am because I'm still very involved in their broadcast. Uh, but I'm just doing it from uh, the Fox sideline as opposed to directly on the star sideline. You mentioned the high school football. I know your goal in, in conversations we've had is you want Fox Sports Southwest to be the best of all the, the regional networks. Uh, and oh, one, yeah. of, one of the separating factors, I imagine, is is the high school football coverage. And I, I lived in California where they also have strong high school football, but uh, the coverage then, and I imagine now, certainly doesn't even come close. I mean, the, the, the quality of the broadcasts and, and, and the, the depth of what you guys do rivals, you know, high-level uh, professional football broadcasts. What was that process like of, of bringing that to Fox Sports Southwest and, and using that as, as something that allows you all to stand out and, and do something that, frankly, I, as far as I know, no one had done around the country for high school sports, no matter what the sport was? Well, I think Fox Sports Southwest has always had a very deep connection with high school football in a variety of ways, so much so that the former general manager, John Heidke, is in the uh, high School Football Hall of Fame uh, because he really uh, understood the, the passion that, that Texas has for, for football and, you know, tried to find ways for us to be involved in those broadcasts. The interesting thing about Texas is, and I'm always, I say this, people are always stunned, um, it's, it's not allowed to air a live high school Friday night football game. It's not allowed. It's, it's against the law. You have to get Texas legislative approval to get something like that done. Uh, so, you know, the former, the former group that oversaw Southwest had a jam-packed Friday uh, of high school football, kind of like a uh, hot zone channel, NFL red zone channel uh, that the NFL has, uh, but without a game. And so it was my now boss, Steve Simpson's idea, that why don't we – you know, you look around the Fox landscape, why don't we do something like what uh, Minnesota does with Hockey Day Minnesota or what Indiana does with Basketball Day Indiana? Why can't we do Football Day in Texas, basically? And, you know, let's go and see if we can seek out legislative approval to do something here and put on some games. Well, uh, we got approval to do Texas Football Days uh, as a one-time venture where we would go and tell the stories in the communities and go do two games and like a double header in one day. And, um, you know, Fox corporately in LA at the time was like, we, we think there's definite justification to make these shows big. So go make them big. And so what we did was, uh, urging on, uh, NFL Cowboys 
you know, big time broadcast big. We had every toy, every uh, item you could have, every camera uh, to do these games. And um, with that, we've also extended the tradition that Fox has always had of doing the high school championship games. I mean, when you have Skycam at a uh, game that's a two-way game where the town of, you know, 1400 and there's a Skycam above the players, like, that's an awesome sight to see. And I, I love it because I think about the kids and the fans who are looking up going, you got to be kidding me. <laughs> we're playing a football game, um, and we're, we're at Cowboys Stadium, and it's like it looks, it looks just like the video games. It looks just like Sunday. And that's always been our goal. If we're going to do it, let's do it big. Let's do it right. Um, and let's tell the stories. And we love to tell the stories of the communities and the players. Uh, I think that there's just something so pure about it. I love sports. I love all of our sports teams that we cover. They're all so unique and different. But anytime you get a chance to find, you know, a high school kid um, who's playing a game, well, not for money, not for anything. Maybe the last game they ever play uh, for, for a team. Uh, there's just something very pure about it and uh, just interesting. So fascinating, so interesting. And the stories we've had to tell are crazy. We've had, you know, we've had, we had a coach who, who was dying. He was, he was, they knew he was going to pass away, and he wins two state championships when doctors have told him he probably shouldn't have lived. You know, we've had uh, Jerry Jones' uh, grandson win two state championships uh, in the stadium that, that you know, his, his grandfather basically built. Uh, we've had uh, Hail Mary to win the state championship. Um, so we've, like the stories we've had to tell have been phenomenal. Uh, the, the sport itself, we just think it's so pure and it's so important. The value of high school football to these Texas towns, it's a big, big deal. And it's an honor to get a chance to be a part of it. Jason, I, I'm, I'm curious, you mentioned uh, all the different properties and, and you know, that, that means there are a lot of different people who are a part of it. You know, the on-air side uh, is, is so subjective so what are the things you think about when evaluating, uh, whether it's on air or, or, or the production side of things, what are some of the things you try to consider or you think are important uh, to you when evaluating the products from, from that standpoint? Uh, opinions are, are an interesting thing. <laughs> um, because, you know, part of, part of the job uh, that I have is to have an opinion uh, about the production, the quality of production, the, the, the talent, you know, what they say, uh, how they say it, you know, all those things, right? Um, but you also have to take into account, too, the value that individuals bring with their breadth of knowledge, the importance that they have to the sport overall. Um, there, there's so many factors that go into evaluating talent, and it's such a hard business. Uh, to get into and timing, timing is everything. Um, you know, there's there's people who just it, it was their right time in the right place, and and they have stories that are even just as crazy as mine when I was trying to get into this business overall. Um, so, uh, the, the the just trying to formulate an opinion and make decisions about talent, I find to be the most difficult. And the reason, and I think I I try to be as transparent as possible. Look. I haven't done it. I've never sat there on the desk with the red light on uh, doing a pregame show. I've sat in a truck. I've run a camera. I've messed with audio. I've edited. I've produced packages, but I've never done that. Yet, at the end of the day, you're supposed to have an opinion about what's good and what's not good and who should do it and who shouldn't do it. And that's a real, real tricky thing. I guess along those lines you've got to be, you make a decision and whether it's a live broadcast or, uh, you know, taking a step back and, and considering something from the big picture, you've got to make a decision and you've got to believe in it. You've got to have conviction. I know, uh, you know, and speaking to some, some people, that is a strength of yours. And it's not that you don't care about public opinion, but you know that there comes a time where you've just got to believe that what you know uh, what you've you've trained for is is leading you to this particular decision, and it's it's the decision that, right or wrong, 
you believe in. Have you always been like that? It was, were there moments along the way of growth that that allowed you to be like that? Where does the ability to have that disposition come from? I think as you go through, it could be in any job really, but I mean, as you go through the, they'll call it the hiring process, hiring is hard. Hiring people to do anything is really difficult. Finding the right person, building a team, uh, you know, finding camaraderie within that team so that that, that group can be successful with whatever they're doing. If they're working on uh, accounting spreadsheets, then yeah, you need that in your group. If they're a sales group, yeah, you need that in your group. And the same goes for TV. I've made mistakes in hiring. I've made, I've learned, but you better learn from them. Uh, if you make mistakes and don't learn from them, then you're not going to be a very good manager. Um, I, I feel like the mistakes that I've made, I've really poured over, thought about why did I do this? What was the reason why a decision was made here or there? Um, and I think that that's what leads you down the road to understanding conviction. Um, you know, I feel like uh, I'll query, you know, some people and ask them their, their opinion. I won't ask a massive group of people because that's just going to lead you down too many different roads. And then at the end of the day, when it's, you know, if, if you're the one that has to make the call, you better believe in the call you're going to make. If you have an ounce of doubt in the call you're going to make, then you're probably not making the right call. You'll always have a little fear. There's a difference in fear and doubt. Um, you, can, you can have some fear because it's just a big deal. But if you have doubt in the ability of an individual uh, or for or, or uh, whatever it is that you're covering, then then you're probably not making the right decision. All right, Jason, I got two more questions for you, and I certainly appreciate the time. The, the, the first of those two, in your, your current role with Fox Sports Southwest, is there a challenge that – you you all have dealt with as a team that you're maybe most proud of or, or really proud of uh, finding a solution for or overcoming or, or something along those lines. Well, I, I I'm probably most proud of what we did for high school football and Texas football days. If you're not in this business, you'll never understand how complicated and big of a production that we did. Uh, when my boss came to me and said, "Hey, it would be great is to do a doubleheader football game." And I was like, okay, a doubleheader football game. That's yeah, let's do it. Uh, so for us, you know, we had to do a game in uh, San Antonio, which was Congress Judson, and we decided to do a game uh, in Idaloo, Texas. You wanted to have a balance between that big five A six A type environment, and you wanted to have that smaller town two A three A type of atmosphere. So we had those two things, and I was like, okay, well, to build production facility is going to be complicated. It's not like you're pulling into Cowboy Stadium where you're pulling into uh, a college football stadium. Like you're doing, this is high school football. And uh, on top of that, he goes, and you know what else would be great? <laughs> he goes, if you could just do like some coverage around the state from different schools, that would also be pretty good. And I was like, oh, okay. <laughs> and he goes, let's do 10 of them. Like 10? So we recreated a, basically a network of 10 different reporters at 10 different sites on top of the two sites. So we had 12 total going um, where we were basically covering all these games from around the state. And like it just, the, the, the technicalities with that would make your head spin. The satellite space, the, the, the how we do the graphics, the building all this custom content. Um, and you know what? We were a network at the time that was in transition, you know, uh, you know, the people who, who used to be the GM and the, and the executive producer for, for many, many years, very successful at it, had left and we were coming in and we had some different thoughts on what we were trying to do it, uh, with some items. And then to be like, oh yeah, and by the way, uh, you know, 12 months from getting there, you're going to do the biggest broadcast this network has ever done ever. And I that, that, to me, the coming together uh, was awesome. Like, just to watch everyone take ownership, come up with ideas, try things. It wasn't a perfect broadcast. None, none, none of them ever are. Um, but it was, it was an incredible thing. And I uh, have been fortunate enough to win a few Emmys in my career. And um, that we won an Emmy for technical achievement. Um, for what we did, and that might be one of the most significant Emmys I feel like I've had a chance to be a part of. Yeah, that's really neat. And, and as a, a consumer of that, the the coverage is awesome, and it, it's it's so enjoyable to watch. It's it's really neat to see, uh, you know, in, in such a short time, 
the the ability to go from A to B, so to speak, and in, in what you guys have been able to produce. Uh, the last question, Jason, you deal with all sorts of people, all sorts of personalities, certainly, uh, some of whom uh, you at one point worked for. Now, you know, you serve perhaps uh, in a role where they answer to you. Uh, how do you how do you approach leadership? What are the, 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 the principles, the values that are most important to you now that you're in a role of leading as many people over, uh, you know, different sports, different uh, I guess different arenas, so to speak, uh, that you have to do. What, what what's important? What have you learned, and what stands out? Integrity, I think, is critical. Integrity, honesty, transparency, fairness. Those are the things that jump out to me. Um, uh, you know, transparency is easily just as important. You know, it's tough to work in an environment where you don't know whether or not the things that you're doing are are liked or not liked or, you know, you don't, you don't get any feedback. Everybody wants feedback. It's impossible to provide feedback for everybody um, because there's just so many different entities and, and individuals. But, um, but trans, being transparent and honest with people will uh, do wonders uh, for you. And, you know, it's, it's easy to do in the good times and it's really, really hard to do it in the tough times. But if you can somehow maintain a, a level of integrity and honesty and transparency, then, uh, then you're doing it right. Well, definitely a sound approach and certainly appreciate Jason's insight into that and so much more. I hope you enjoyed his storytelling, whether it had to do with dealing with Rich Peverly, the 99 Stanley Cup, or even simply rebranding the Dallas Stars. I thought all that stuff was fascinating, not to mention everything that he does now as the executive producer of Fox Sports Southwest. Thanks so much for tuning in to Episode 40 of the Justice Set Conversation. Episode 41, the Dirk episode, released later this week. Not actually with Dirk. We'll chat with NBC's Sarah Perlman, who is hosting a sports gambling show after leaving a job covering the Orioles on television and we venture into this this gambling world that seems to be growing and growing and growing so that will be released later this week again would appreciate if you would like comment share subscribe and i thank you so much for taking some time out of your day to listen to my conversation with jason walsh stay safe be well and we'll talk to you soon